Julia is here. For those of you with children who would like to send them back to get their Bible bags for our worship time together. The rest of us, let's take our Bibles and turn to Matthew 5. As I said, we're going into the Sermon on the Mount for a few Sundays as we look at this amazing teaching of Jesus Christ. He both challenges us and, and calls us. Uh, it's an amazing, amazing sermon. I have had people who said that we should just read that every day of our lives, the whole sermon, over and over. I think that wouldn't be a bad practice. There seems to be in Christian thought and Christian practice two ways that we have historically responded to a world that is often so uh, dangerously lustful and vulgar and has, in fact, within it some evil that is destructive to life itself. The first has been to withdraw from the world, uh, to live behind cloistered walls, to not let the world affect us while we pray for them and for their salvation. The second seems to be to immerse ourselves into the needs of the world and in so doing bring God's salt and light into those places that need to be flavored and protected. The first, of course, is modeled down through history with the cloistered monasteries, although I think there are many ways that people can cloister themselves away from the world besides uh, living in a monastic order. But we recognize this in such things as the Benedictines or the poor Clares, who serve the world primarily through prayer, although they do other things as well in that. The second is modeled by the ministering friars. It's the Franciscans who have uh, uh, risen and gone of into the byways of the world and to uh, care for the people who are there, especially starting the hospitals and the ministries that care for the sick and the poor. Mother Teresa's Sisters of Charity, of course, is well known in our generation as one of the ways in which we go out and serve the poor and the sick and the needy in our world. I don't know if you watched the Grammy Awards a few Sunday nights ago, but I want to use that award ceremony as a real life situation that you and I are facing today in the culture in which we live. And I want to bring the question as followers of Jesus Christ, how do we deal with a Grammy culture? Do we protect ourselves from it behind cloistered walls, or do we permeate ourselves within it to bring salt and light? Now, in using the Grammys, I recognize that by design and by definition, artists want to and need to push the envelope. Uh, they do not uh, want to just fall away in obscurity, so they're always doing things to be noticed in order to to sell their songs and their videos and their movies and so on. But I also think primarily that most artists, the ones that I know, push the envelope in order to push us to better understand who we are, our motivations, our fears, our prejudices, our longings. And so at the Grammys a few weeks ago, we were presented with award-winning artists pushing the envelope. Now, they did so, of course, musically. Uh, what is happening in music is just amazing as we see our musicians moving forward in different forms. They did it technologically. They, of course, did it in biography. But they also pushed the envelope 
in the areas of decency and spirituality. Now I'm not going to present to you the images that were presented on primetime television and to the homes of our nation because it would be disrespectful to the sanctity of the sanctuary to do so. But I want to show you just a few images that have been uh, chosen that are a little more uh, blurred but nevertheless communicate so clearly. As Christians, we might think that the most concerning art was the, the demonic ritual that was presented by Katy Perry. Katy, as you know, is the daughter of a, a pastor here in Santa Barbara. And I have to say that I prayed and will continue to pray for this young lady. I pray as well for all the talented and amazing artists our pop culture is destroying and deporting and dying as they live within this caustic granny world, Grammy world. This is a world that attacks their souls and their minds and their bodies, and they attack the most gifted ones. But the truth is, as Christians, we should also be concerned about more than just the demonic ritual that was a part of that uh, uh, award show. That destructive culture of fame is something that permeates so much more than just the spiritual. We should be concerned about a culture that is dehumanizing us, that is objectifying us and degrading us, that has turned violence into entertainment and titillates our desire for vengeance, presents drug addiction as something that's chic when it is so destructive, mocks marriage as the Grammy culture did at the Grammy Awards. This culture, of course, enters our home every night and it enters the phones that are in our hands. Now, I do not believe, as I've said this many times, I do not believe that our American culture is any more a problem than any other culture throughout the world or any culture down through history. If you study history at all, and if you understand the spiritual nature of the nations that have gone before us, the, there is no difference in the human heart today than there ever has been. We do have a problem in that our technology uh, brings it into our homes and into our hands. We don't have to go anywhere uh, to go to a temple prostitute or to go to, to get something that is uh, destructive to our sexuality or anything else. It's there and it's tempting and it actually is Google uh, controlled so that it, it hits you at your weakest points. So I do not believe that in fact we're dealing with anything different today. So the solution that Jesus gives us in our text that we're about to read is in fact the solution for our day and our lives and how we as Christians can live within this world being the people uh, that God has called us to, to be. It was given to us 2,000 years ago in this Sermon on the Mount, and we are to be the salt and the light to the distasteful and the darkened places. But the question that has always arisen and that it caused these two responses to the world within Christianity is how do we be salt and light without having the sin get back inside of us? How do we keep ourselves from being harmed by this uh, polluting kind of spirituality 
without cloistering ourselves behind closed doors? And how do we, if we're going to enter the world and to be salt and light there, flavoring and enlightening all the different conversations and creative acts and, and business practices and on and on, if we choose to enter the world and immerse ourselves in ministry, how do we keep our own souls from being fed by the images and messages and motivations of this world? A world that seems to be hell-bent on destroying ourselves. Well, that's what we want to explore together because that is in a new condition of the human condition. It is, in fact, something that Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount counseled. Now, he starts the Sermon on the Mount, as you know, with the Beatitudes. And the Beatitudes talk about what is blessing and how we become blessed. And we'll talk about that next week when he goes into this uh, understanding of what it is God is trying to do for and with humanity in bringing it about. But right after he gives the Beatitudes, he teaches us what our responsibility is in the world. And that's the section of the Sermon on the Mount that we're going to read today. So Matthew chapter 5, we're going to begin with verse 13, and we're only going to read seven verses this week. These are the words of Jesus. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the slightest letter nor the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will, not, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now keep that open before you and let's pray. Father, we know that uh, we live in a world that has so often become darkened and so often has become distasteful. And we struggle with knowing how and when and where we respond and, and what we do and don't do and how we protect our developing children and youth as their minds are, are coming to understand what's right and true and lasting and long and, and brings a, a, a life of joy and love. And so we need uh, uh, directly your guidance in this. I know that you're going to speak into each person who's here. You're going to talk uniquely to each of us. So we're open to you now. We're listening. And then give us the courage and the ability to respond. We pray it in the name of Jesus, the one who came to make it possible. Amen. Now, I don't know exactly what Jesus would say if he were to come today and to stand before the American church. But I would hate to hear him say something like this. 
Unless you are better than the best church-attending Christians, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. That is, in fact, what he said when he was here to the religious people of his day. He said it to the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the most religious church-attending Christians of their day. They were faithful. They were faithful of the faithful, the dedicated of the dedicated. Yet they were so caught up in keeping themselves pure and undefiled from the world that many of them hated the world and therefore hated the creator of the world, Jesus himself. Now, obviously, you realize, since you've been around a while, or if you're just finding out, you'll find out very quickly that we as free Methodists taught by Wesley, our answer to that cloistered question or ministering immersion is that we immerse ourselves in service to the world. Every church that I know of, of the Wesleyan tradition, reaches out continually with very physical ways of caring for the people of our world. It's a part of the very DNA of who we are as Christians. It's an expression of the love of God. We take the statements of Jesus, understanding that we are the salt and the light, to mean that we are actually to go and be the salt, to sprinkle into the conversations and the creative acts, everything that we know Jesus to be. And we're the light shining whenever there's some darkness that is coming upon a group or upon a people or upon a city, upon a nation, and a darkness that can so overwhelm that we do not honor the human beings uh, that uh, we're sharing this life with. But the question even for us as, as Wesleyans is, how do we keep from losing our saltiness? And how do we keep our light from being covered? Well, Jesus gives that next. It, there seems to be almost a, a kind of, okay, he was talking about being salt and light, and now he's talking about the law. But in fact, that's one sermon, and he's giving the solution to the problem of how do we be salt? How do we be light in this world? And so in verse 17, he gives a very profound statement when he says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets, the teachings of the Old Testament. That was the expression that was used. I have come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And then verse 19, he goes on to say, therefore anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Now the word that Jesus uses there, that he has not come to abolish, but to fulfill the law, and the prophets. It's the very same word that is used all the way through uh, the New Testament, and Matthew uses it himself later on in the book, to describe how Jesus fulfills the prophecies of the prophets about the Messiah. And so he has come to fulfill the expectations that the people had about what God's messenger, his anointed one, will do when he comes. And Jesus is explaining that that fulfillment means that he's come to give the meaning and purpose and expectation of the law and the prophets, that we are to understand why God gives the law. And as I said, we'll focus on that next week. But how does he do it is the question now. And it's, it's a, a, an ingenious, and perhaps as you look back upon it and look upon the world, it's the only way that it can be done, both 
by God's example and by our action in the world. He became one with us in every way except sin. Now that might be so well known to you that you don't even stop and think of the ingenious method of the incarnation that he became one with us in every way except for sin. That profound model and profound example is what he calls us to do and to be. To be one with everyone except for sin. Think of the nature of Jesus becoming one with us, like us in every way. Now that means that when Jesus thinks of us, he does not think of us as them. He thinks of us as we, that we are one with him and one with the Father, just as he and the Father are one, that we are in this journey together and there is no them, but it's us following Jesus Christ and being his presence in the world. He is not with us, of course, in our sin. He is not with us when we choose to break the law and go against the wisdom of the prophets. But he hasn't come uh, to enforce the law. The law, as we'll talk about next week, is in the very nature of things. He has come with us so that we might be able to understand the freedom we can have in Christ to be free from the destruction of disobedience, of sinfulness, of that type of life which destroys and degrades and kills us, as we see so obviously in the culture of our world. He has come to show us the purpose of the law, to protect us, to bless us, to give us long and prosperous life. He has come to fulfill the prophets as they taught us wisdom, the prophetic warnings, giving us wisdom as understanding how we are to live, how we are to not live, so that our lives can go well, not just now, but eternally as we prepare for that place. So Jesus' solution to all of this was to become one with us so that we can be one with him. That's a part of every basic theology that you'll find of Christian faith. It's core to who we are. He entered our world and he enters our lives. He pours out himself so that we can be both forgiven and empowered to live new lives so that we can, in fact, be the salt and the light that he is calling us to be in a world that so needs us. So now you can see that Jesus is our model. He's our example. But he's not just that. He's the one who comes and empowers us to be what he calls us to be. And so we are to be incarnational in this world with everyone in every way except sin. We are not with them in their sin any more than God is with us in our sin. Now it is true that we join them in their pain. All of us know the pain of sin. And we know what it is to come along a person who is struggling and being destroyed by the sinful uh, choices that they've made. And it is true that we teach the way and the wisdom of God. We teach that violence will never lead to peace, however many wars we may fight. We teach that promiscuity 
and adultery will never satisfy. We teach that deceit will not bring prosperity. Businesses must be based on honesty. We teach that dishonor will not produce healthy homes. The honor of the father and the mother, the honor of one another. We teach that envy will not produce gratitude, that you'll never be satisfied if you allow the sin of envy to take over your life. You'll never have enough. So we aren't with them in their sin, but we are with every person in every way as we pour out our lives, just as Jesus Christ has poured out his life for us. That's the simple gospel and the simple teaching of Jesus Christ. Now it's clear as we apply that to our lives that we do that both individually, each of us individually being with others and pouring ourselves out for them, but we do it also as a church, as a group. We do it as Christians because that's whose name we have, but we do it as a church because that's the calling upon us. We as a church, as you've heard this morning, have moved into the west side in order to be incarnational in that place, loving all of us who are living there, all of humanity. We moved into Goleta and Isla Vista now with our daughter church, Light and Life Goleta. Our youth group is going to pass out the socks this Wednesday night as we go into the neighborhood and care for those who do not have. We've moved into Madagascar and Costa Rica, and we've moved into South America and the Sudan, and we move into and incarnate his love in a whole variety of ways. And I could go on and on and on. Every church that I know of is doing tremendous work of going into the world and caring for them. And individually, each of us have our unique ways of going into and being with every person in every way except sin. We go into the world sprinkling the conversations at work, bringing God's salt into that conversation. We bring it into the boardrooms and the decision-making at our businesses. We bring it into the classroom as we teach. We bring it into our practices and the ways we care for people. We bring it into our communities and the way that we share a light. We shine with God's love in all the places of that we travel so that we can bring his light to bear when darkness so often has found its, its primacy. So I know this morning, I know you, that we want to commit ourselves, both as a church and as Christians, to do all that we can to be the salt and the light of this world. But going back to the Grammys, and all the other areas of culture in which you and I uh, spend our lives, from business to classroom to politics to social work to boardroom and so on. In every area of human life, we need mature, capable, thoughtful Christians who are not afraid to be God's salt and light, sprinkling in appropriate ways just the right amount so that the whole recipe is changed shining the light so that there are no shadows in the midst of this darkened place, allowing God to, in fact, work through us to be that. And obviously, in the Grammys, we need artists 
we need Christians who are artistically and powerfully gifted, who will use their gifts to bring about a wholeness to society rather than to bring about the occult or the de debasing of our sexuality or the mocking of our marriages. It's no coincidence, as I was thinking of the Grammys and as I was watching some of the videos uh, that uh, on the internet about it, that not only is Katy Perry a pastor's daughter who was gifted by God to use her musical gifts and ability for his salt and light and has chosen differently, but also if you look at the other two primary offenders of Christian faith at the Grammys, if you look at Beyonce who began it with a very uh, degrading sexualized dance, she was raised in Roman Catholic schools and she was uh, a Methodist uh, choir member. She knows the faith and has chosen differently. But also Queen Latifah, and that's not her name, but as a young person was raised in Roman Catholic schools and was Baptist in upbringing and experience and uh, has chosen to use her gifts in a different way. So it's not that God hasn't given his people gifts. He has. The question is, how do we use those gifts? Are we salt and light for his purpose in the world? Or do we, in fact, uh, fall into the seduction of the cultures around us? It's like the temptation that Jesus received when he was in the wilderness and Satan came to him and said, see the nations of the world, they're yours if you'll simply worship me. I will give them to you. And it's that temptation that so often erupts our lives in a whole variety of ways. And we need to pray for the young artists who are gifted to, to use their gifts in such a whole and holy and uplifting way and yet choose not to. So this morning the question each of us should ask ourselves is, am I immersed in the world, a world that needs Jesus' salt and light? Am I impacting my culture, my workplace, my school, my community, my area of the larger culture that we all share? Have I bring the, brought the fulfillment that Jesus brought by being incarnated in that place? I would suggest that each of us want to ask Jesus, what more would you like for me to do or what different way would you want me to be so that I can be the salt and the light that you call me to be? Jesus called us. The, the only question we have to ask is, are we being his salt and light? Let's spend time with him.